0: The political debate are currently at its high in the UK, which is why I got hold of Ian Anderson, who is a highly recognized lobbyist. We had a chat about what the current relationship is like between businesses and politicians and how businesses can successfully engage into political conversations with the public. Ian has more than 25 years of experience in communication, and today he's co-founder and executive chairman at Cicero Group, where he helped fortune 500 organizations in the corporate communication strategy. He's a well-known political pundit and has worked for a range of politicians, including the British MP Ken Clark. Right, on with the show. From Studio Roo, I'm Jesse Fram and this is Bosses for Breakfast, the show where I talk with entrepreneurs creatives and inspiring visionaries about their successes and their failures around advertising and what they're bringing forward today. Thank you for joining the show. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Yeah, so in the show we always kick it off with a specific question and that's around morning routine. I mean, I don't doubt that you might be awake 24-7 at the moment with an election coming up. But what's your normal morning routine like when it's not madness like it is at the moment?
1: So I'm a bit 24-7, regardless of whether or not there's an election going on. I get up very, very early. I usually get up about 5.30, 5.45, um, do a little bit of stretching, try and do a little bit of uh, (laughs) physical activity. And then I'm straight into listening to the Today programme after I've showered and got ready. And I kind of listen to the Today program, pretty much on my morning commute and try and read usually Financial Times, New York Times, Times and The Sun. And that's my little bit of tabloid earth. And keep an eye on Twitter too. So typical kind of communications geek, like to keep my eyes on everything from the heavyweights to the tabloids and stuff that's going on beyond the UK. And, you know, try and get as much as I can, informed about my day before it begins.
0: Wow, that is really glued to any news channel from the beginning. (laughs) I
1: really am. I'm a complete news junkie from the minute I wake up and, you know, kind of doing what I do, you have to, really.
0: Yeah, do you dream about it at (laughs) night? I think I
1: do. I think I dream news. I dream about news as well as doing it during the day, too.
0: (laughs) You must do. Right, so can you describe your career in a little bit more detail and also how does one becoming one of the highest profile lobbyists in the country and and what does it mean to be a lobbyist nowadays so in terms
1: of career path when i was 16 i saw the movie all the president's men it's all about the watergate scandal if you've not watched it it's um it's the movie i probably watched most in my life and in my office i've got a film poster of the movie itself and when i saw that film i said right That's it. That's what I want to do. I want to be around journalism. I want to be around politics. I want to be around news. So I went and I studied economics and history at university and then went straight to work for a newspaper, a local newspaper, and then went to work for a business newspaper, worked with national newspapers as well here in The UK um, and built a career as a journalist as my first passion. I was always interested in politics, so I was trying to write about politics along the way and be involved in that whole debate too and that interest, satiate my passion for politics, and work with one or two politicians as well. So I worked with Ken Clark when he was trying to become leader of the Conservative Party here in the UK, worked with one or two other conservative politicians as well advising them on policy uh, and about 1997 i made the leap into communications and lobbying joined an american owned business learned the ropes for a few years and then set up my own business cicero group in the early part of this century and have built it really from there to the point now where we have a presence Here in the UK, in Brussels, all things across the European Union, and really since the Brexit debate, opened an operation in Dublin to keep tabs on that entire conversation. So, my career path is really from kind of journalism through politics into now doing what I do.
0: It's really devoted and with a clear path all the way through.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm very lucky in that, you know, when I saw that movie, the reason I referenced it (laughs) is. You know, I often do talks at universities and at schools around the theme of, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I didn't work it out until I was 16. But I've sort of subsequently learned out that most people don't work it out until they've even been through university. So I was lucky. I I knew what really got me up in the morning, Mm. what really, really interested me. And it was always been politics and news.
0: Yeah. So what does it mean to be a lobbyist from the outside world? It can seem fluffy.
1: Yeah, and I think that lobbying doesn't do a great job of telling its own story, which is why I try and get out and about and tell the story of lobbying and try and demystify it. A lot of people try and cloak it in some strange shrouded, to use your expression, sort of fluffy, uh, amorphous bubble. And for me, it's really simple. It's about trying to influence a public policy outcome now that lobby could be done by a major business it could be done by a group of um, organizations all coming together to be in the same place to lobby for a change it could be done by a charity it could be done by a trade union lots of people lobby it's basically about trying to influence the public policy process towards the interests that you're lobbying for
0: that makes sense so I've been through your book that has the controversial name Fuck Business, The Business of Brexit. And what I really like about it is that it's not meant to be an academic book. It's, it's a book that are reflecting on events of the Brexit politics and what happened before and after up till today. Do you want to introduce the book and tell also like how did you get that name?
1: <laughs> so I never thought I'd had a book in me at all. I never thought I'd have time to write a book. And I, I never thought I'd really have the mental capacity to do the kind of marathon job that is writing 80,000 words. And I certainly thought I'd never had the capacity to do it, as my publisher asked me to do it, in about three and a half months. <laughs> um, I was yeah. The book was commissioned in March 2019 this year, and I finished the book pretty much the first manuscript by the middle of June. So, um It was written pretty quickly. Look, what it's about is the, I think, disintegrating relationship between our businesses and our politicians. And it tries to tell the story really over the period, and to some extent it's a personal diary, kind of unpacked. If you're interested in lobbying, read my book, because it kind of does give you a sense of what a lobbyist does for a day job. And I I try and unpack and explain the tortuous journey across the past few years, since the financial crisis, into the whole series of elections that Britain's been having, into the Scottish independence referendum, into the Brexit referendum, and really try and explain why businesses cease to be listened to by lots of politicians, and not just by left of center politicians who you might say would be a bit more business skeptical but a lot of the arguments that business was making were being discounted and dismissed by right of center politicians and you know the title of the book F business, I'll be slightly more polite. The title of the book is really all about what now the UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, uh, said in the summer of 2018, when he said F business, because he just got so frustrated about all the lobbying that was going on to try and argue against a lot of the Conservative government's uh, Brexit plans plans to take the UK out of the EU. So I wanted to explore why a centre-right politician could say that, not apologise for saying that, and really what all that has meant to the relationship between our businesses and our politics.
0: Yeah, I was about to say, did it have some consequences with the business world?
1: So, in many consequences with the business world. Firstly, this sense that businesses weren't being listened to. The economic arguments, shall we say pure economic rationality, were arguments that would no longer find traction with politicians. Because if we look at Brexit, if we look at Scottish independence, if we look at the election of Trump in America, Le Pen in France, alternative for Deutschland in Germany, I could go on. Um, pure Economic analysis is no longer the trump card, shall we say, in terms of how politicians decide to make their decisions. And business missed the beat on this. To a large extent, the reason that politicians have been able to ignore business uh, stems from really what happened over a decade ago during the financial crisis. And then the decisions that were taken by many governments to create... Budgetary austerity and many, you know, many people on the left and the right, to some extent, blame business more than politicians for that austerity.
0: So, have you seen the communication between business and politicians change over time? I assume it was a really good relationship years ago, but it seems like it's more fragile.
1: It's fragile. I think that when I first started doing this uh, job, politicians and businesses used similar language. In a way, certainly here in the UK, there was less lobbying to do 20, 30 years ago, because I think there was a better understanding. There was less of the debate that took place because digital didn't generate the debate, because digital didn't exist. I think now there is a tendency to attack business by politicians because It's easier to point fingers than have fingers pointed at you. And therefore, and then businesses have felt under siege and they felt less willing to want to engage with a lot of politicians. Some businesses I know just want to keep their heads down and hope that the kind of problem goes away or or even worse. And, you know, one of the anecdotes I talk about in the book is how, you know, I heard a very important investor in the UK, a big US business that employs tens of thousands of people, turn round to senior members of the British cabinet and say, I've heard so many things that you politicians have said in the last three years. None of it has come true. And I don't believe a word that any of you say anymore. I mean, I'd never... Never heard a business leader say that to a politician um, until mm. the spring of this year. Normally the relationship's very respectful. To some extent, it's quite deferential. You know, these are serious business leaders, titans of industry, if you like, right, but they're talking to democratically elected representatives and people who are leading the affairs of state of the country in which they are operating but for me that was a symbol and sign that the relationship had just broken down
0: do you think it feels broken but can it go in the opposite direction if you take on the subjective glasses and look at it from a public perspective that politicians if they go more solo and less listening to the businesses is that better for the society or is it better from a society perspective when they actually listen to business or is it a balancing act to be
1: had I think there is a major opportunity. And I would say, you know, right now, the Greta Thunberg effect, the wider debate that is going on about social purpose and business is going to be at the heart of this. And it's kind of where I end the book, in that I talk about that if businesses, rather than being remote from ordinary people's lives... If businesses could create a deeper connection, and I'm not talking about corporate social responsibility, I'm talking about, you know, investing in the infrastructure, the life chances, the jobs, the educational opportunities that are all around people's everyday lives. And if people could see that it is businesses that pay tax, that it is businesses that you know, create these opportunities. The state can't do everything. I think business would create an awful lot more deeper connection between voters and themselves. And if they did, politicians would have to listen to businesses much, much more than they do right now. The problem I think right now is a lot of businesses don't want to speak up because they don't feel they've got a good story to tell in terms of that societal purpose.
0: Yeah, and I I know it's something you're also touching on in your book. So in terms of businesses engaging into political communication, I think, like, especially everybody working in branding, at least are aware that it can be a minefield for them to engage into, like, political talks, and they, they risk brand damage by doing so. But do you think... Any organisations could actually benefit from going into the, to the debate and taking a standpoint or could they be educational or how would you do it if you were a business?
1: So I don't think businesses, I don't, I don't think businesses have any choice. Businesses are actors in society. They're actors in communities. Therefore, in a way, everything that business does is political. The idea that they can shy away from politics is, you know, I I think it just flies in the face of the facts of how businesses operate inside economies and then get the license to operate from voters and therefore then from politicians. So they've got to get involved in these debates. One of the really exciting, I mentioned Greta Thunberg earlier, yeah. I think one of the very exciting things about the Greta Thunberg effect and beyond Brexit, the whole debate about green and societal purpose is for 2019, it has been by far the second most important issue on my desk. By far. Mm. Nothing else mm. comes close to it. What is happening is that the big investors, the people that you and I Put our money with to save for our future pensions, those investors are starting to move the dial on what they're asking uh, the companies that they invest in to do. And therefore, there's quite a really powerful connection that I think is now being made by particularly millennial customers and millennial savers who are starting to build their pension pots or starting to decide which products they want to buy or not want to buy when they walk into a store or click online. That is creating a powerful effect with what they're asking their pension funds to do with the money that they're investing on their behalf, which is creating a powerful impact in terms of how the companies that are being invested in react to that changing dynamic that is taking place in terms of investment flows, which is now flowing through to the politicians themselves. If you look at the party manifestos in the current UK general election, they are all Really trying to address green environment and social mm-hmm. purpose. So there's a chance here. There's a window. Just as a, there's a sort of window to address climate change. There is a window to create a deep connection, a positive connection between business, politics, and voters. And there's a moment to seize on here. I just hope that that's what happens.
0: Are there any examples of any organizations that are actually engaging into these conversations quite well at the moment?
1: Yeah, I think for me, I mean, I spend a lot of time, you know, if you again, if you read my book, I spend a lot of time working with investors, and there's a really, really, really good sense now of how, you know, some of the major international investors are making sense of this. In terms of what they're saying publicly and what they're trying to do and in a way you know because of what happened over a decade ago when the financialized um, economy almost blew up as we know actually so it's taken a few years to steady the ship it's taken a few years to work through the politics but now Because of the demands that are being placed on them, particularly, as I said, by millennial savers, I actually think it's some of the investment firms that are now at the forefront of creating this change.
0: So a a bit of another question, but I know LGBT rights is something that's quite close to your heart and that you, amongst others, are an ambassador for the Stonewall and a trustee for the Global Giving Platform, GWAT. And in your book, it seems like, and we also touched on it, like any like financial issues talked about between politicians and business are a little bit suppressed. But one of the things you mentioned that you did get on the agenda, the issues around LGBT and the folks that needs to be on this. Why do you think they're willing to go into this conversation? And and can you tell like what happened and what has been the success in it?
1: So I've seen a remarkable change on the desire of businesses to want to talk about LGBT in the workplace. I mean, 15 years ago, people just didn't want to talk about it at all. They're really talking about it now. And at the same time, I would say that's echoed with the politicians too. They didn't really want to talk about, certainly in this country, 15, 20 years ago, LGBT issues. I think there is a real openness now that is starting to change the dynamic of the conversation. The reason I highlighted is I care a lot about it. It's mm-hmm. pretty important to me. But it's also through the tension over the past decade, I think, again, it's a way where business and politicians can come together because they're both wanting to do the same thing. They're trying to make, I think, life better for LGBT people at work and in society. They're trying to support openness. They're trying to support the development of a much, much more diverse workforce. And if that conversation, and the reason I'm, you know, for me it's important is it's personal, but it's also, frankly, if that conversation can improve the psychology and the dynamic between business and politicians to then talk about other things, then that, for me, is a really good outcome for opening up the whole conversation in the first place.
0: Do you ever find, I know, especially this year and last year, there were a lot of love is love campaigns and it felt like everybody wanted to have a say in it. Can it ever be an issue when organisations go down that route, or can they do it in a wrong way?
1: I think the most important thing is that organisations are getting involved because they're doing something about it and they care. I think what gets exposed really, really quickly is what I would call rainbow washing. <laughs> you know, people yeah, just <laughs> just sort of wrapping themselves on in the rainbow flag or or another cause or an issue. And then actually when you kick the tires really hard, and for me as a communications guy, this is really important. I mean I'm always asking what's the real commitment? Are you changing your organization? Are you in this case making it more open and diverse? If you're not doing those things then you're trying to jump on a bandwagon and right now, jumping on that bandwagon gets exposed and it's quite right that it gets exposed. So if it's hollow and it's not authentic, it deserves to be called out. If it's authentic, it deserves to be supported. And I think actually, you know, you, what you're seeing is again, people moving towards brands and businesses as consumers or as places that people want to go and work where they actually want to support good stuff that's going on and back away from organisations that are just playing lip service.
0: It seems like you can quite quickly do more damage than good. It almost seems like some companies will end up just doing it for the money and it becomes very transparent when they do that.
1: Yeah, and I think that's, for me, this is one of the really good things about digital. There are lots of things that are not good about digital, But one of the things here is that I think you can quickly call out people who are organisations who are not walking the top.
0: Yeah, exactly. So just to wrap it up before it comes to an end here, I know that you had to write your book in the shortest amount of time ever, but it's been a few months since you launched. And if you had the opportunity to write another chapter in, what would it be about? So there's
1: maybe another book out of this, uh, Jesse, anyway, <laughs> because, of course, you know, we're talking while well, we're still waiting to hear whether or not the UK is going to leave the EU at the end of January, not leave the EU, have another referendum, have a Scottish, second Scottish be referendum. ever leaving. <laughs> um, you know, it's the never-ending story, this Brexit story. But, you know, for me, I mean, I would want to... I think, explore in greater depth. I would sort of touch on some of the themes that we've been focusing on on this podcast about a deeper connection between business and society. There's a really good book that influenced me, written by Lord Brown and Tommy Stadlin, a book called Connect, which I would recommend to everyone, which gave me a lot of inspiration for some of my thinking from my own book. And that is about how to, you know, frankly and move beyond CSR and create create greater social purpose between business and society, and therefore our politicians. And that book was written a few years ago now, so what I I would love to do is take on that subject a bit more wholeheartedly. And also, one of my big critiques, regardless of the Brexit process, is that the relationship between politics and business and the ability for businesses to talk to politicians is operated in a very mercurial, arbitrary way. I would rather create a situation where there is a much, much more ongoing, open, candid, frank dialogue. So businesses are not just turning up when they want something or government is not just asking business what it can do, but that there is a much, much more open, every week, every day conduit between our businesses and our politicians.
0: Right. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a great pleasure.
1: It's been great to talk to
0: you. Yeah, thank you. Buses for Breakfast are hosted by me and produced by Studio Roo. If you like our show and want more exciting stories like this, don't forget to follow us. You can get all episodes for free on any of your preferred podcast services.